Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am so glad you're here. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. Welcome to another episode of Finding Refuge. I was really honored to sit down with today's guest, Francis Weller. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Francis. Francis Weller, an MFT, is a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist. He is a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions author of The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal, and the Sacred Work of Grief, The Threshold Between Loss and Revelation, and In the Absence of the Ordinary, Essays in a Time of Uncertainty. He has introduced the healing work of ritual to thousands of people. He founded and directs Wisdom Bridge, an organization that offers educational programs that seek to integrate the wisdom from indigenous cultures with the insights and knowledge gathered from Western poetic, psychological, and spiritual traditions. For 37 years, Francis has worked as a psychotherapist and developed a style he calls soul-centered psychotherapy. As a gifted psychotherapist and teacher, he has been described as a jazz artist, Me Too Francis, improvising and moving fluidly in and out of deep emotional territories with groups and individuals, bringing imagination and attention to places often held with judgment and shame. His latest offerings are a 10-session audio series on living a soulful life and why it matters, and the alchemy of initiation, soul work, and the art of ripening. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Francis. We could have kept talking for hours, and there's so much magic and medicine in this interview. Thank you. Hi, Francis. Hi, Michelle. We just did this. We asked how we were doing, and now we're doing it again. Well, uh, how am I doing? As I shared, uh, a little overwhelmed, stressed. We're still deep in the fire season here in California, and our home in August, we were uh, evacuated for almost two weeks, and now there's a fire east of here, east of Santa Rosa, and it's still burning, and so it's just you know, these layers of anxiety that's kind of permeate the body and, mm-hmm. and the psyche, along with all the other things that are going on right now, as we just briefly mentioned, the climate catastrophe, mm-hmm. the racial issues that are absolutely permeating not just this country, but the world, gender dynamics. There's so many threads that are just, in some ways, unraveling by necessity. So, mm-hmm. But they destabilize the whole ground. Yes. No matter how positive it is, hopefully positive, it still destabilizes everything that we've been resting upon, and which makes all of our lives a little bit shaky. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I'm fine. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah. It is destabilizing for sure, everything that is happening right now. Well, thank you for saying yes to being a guest on this podcast and for having a conversation with me. And we met through the SANS conference. And 
as you said, only spent a little time together, but I felt like connected, that it was a sweet connection for sure. And I would love for you to share some about who you are, what you do in the world, however you want to answer the question. Well, the, the biographical sketch would be, I've been a therapist for almost 40 years. And over the course of that articulation, I've kind of created a way of working with people that I call soul-centered psychotherapy. So I consider myself a tracker. When I'm sitting with people or in groups of people, what I'm doing is trying to catch the scent of soul in the conversation, in the room, in the dynamic, and ask what is that deeper layer of human experience asking from us in this moment. Mm-hmm. So rather than trying to lead a process, I'm always one half step behind the process, just trying to see where it's taking us. And having developed a deep, deep faith in soul over, I guess, the almost four decades of working with it. And then in the late 80s and early 90s, I began to do more group work and ritual work. And I met this wild, crazy guy, Maladoma Some, and he and I became good friends and taught together for about five or six years. It was this extraordinary amalgam of indigenous traditions and you know, Western poetic, psychological, spiritual traditions and what I thought was kind of a template for possibilities worlds kind of meeting each other and dreaming together something. So that was delightful. And then probably in the late 90s began to really focus more and more on ritual work around grief and on men's initiation, seeing the tremendous dirge of adult men walking around the world and realizing that the core work right now is maturation. It is ripening human beings. So we don't have, you know, freaked out adolescents, no matter how old they are, running around in our government or on our streets, but actually functioning adults who can take a larger perspective than what's in it for me, you know. So that's been a huge part of my work is to try, no matter what I do now, whether it's lecturing or teaching or workshops or whatever, it's it's really trying to nudge the movement from adolescence into, into adulthood. So there's more and more ripe human beings walking around and responding to the needs of the generations that follow because they're falling without any net right now. There's no one there to catch them. Yeah. That's what it to, to lose the generations behind us. It's just, it's awful. So that's kind of what I've been up to the last 40 years. That's a lot to be up to and necessary. And I'm curious to know what led you. There's so many places to go, but I guess what led you into this space of being a soul tracker and really trying to get to the layer connected to human experience? Like, what do you think led you there to that place? Well, I think it was recognizing a certain impoverishment in the psychological frameworks that I was given, that the idea of simply trying to fix and repair like a, you know, a car dealership, you know, just trying to mend people back so they can go back out there and still participate in a dysfunctional system didn't make a lot of sense. And I was fortunate enough to have mentors in my life who were steeped in Jung's work and James Hillman. And so this whole archetypal influence began to deeply shape my life. I'll tell you a quick story. I was licensed very young. I was 27 years old. And I was smart enough to know I didn't know a damn thing to save my life, I think. And so I I called the Jung Institute in San Francisco and got a number of analysts in the area. And I called them all up. But then when I talked to Clark, I said, this is the guy I want to sit with. You know, just love the way he sounded on the phone. And 
And I sat down with him. Well, first time I met him, you know, I looked at him and he looked ancient. I mean, he was like 60. It's like, oh my God, this guy is old. (laughs) (laughs) And then we sat down and the first thing he said to me, he reached over and he patted this big rock he had by his chair. And he said, this is my clock. I operate at geologic speed. And if you're going to work with the soul, you need to learn this rhythm because this is how the soul moves. Then he pointed to his clock and he says, it hates this. I don't remember a damn thing from graduate school, but I'll never forget that teaching. And I tell every person I sit with in my practice that story because they usually come in with an urgency. I've got to fix myself. And that urgency to fix themselves is almost always predicated on a wound around belonging, that I have to fix myself in order to become acceptable or approvable to the wider circle of people that I want to see me as good as, you know, I've got it together. So to slow them down to the rhythm of soul has been a primary practice for me with people is let's stop, let's slow it down, let's see if we can actually listen to what the symptoms are saying to you, because they're intelligible. There's wisdom in the symptom itself, you know. James Hillman would say that in your symptoms are your soul's deepest desires. What I was taught in graduate school is in your symptoms are your worst nightmares, you know. Get rid of them. Your job as a therapist is to get rid of those symptoms. What if we got rid of the soul's deepest desires in doing that? So I was very grateful for the mentors I had in my life because they were so committed to listening to soul rather than directing towards some kind of modern conscription of what a human being is supposed to look like because that was so impoverished. Yeah. I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a clinical social worker and have been for since 1998. Yeah, 1998. And just in what you shared about the soul and working with people, it resonates deeply because I felt similarly that I was learning these models and then had to unlearn them. And they really didn't speak to the wholeness of who we are. (laughs) And then dealing with insurance companies didn't, of course, that doesn't speak to the wholeness of who we are. And now I'm doing more intuitive healing because of that. What you named definitely resonates. I feel that. Yeah. And that the system, the mental health system is, is likely in some ways, causing more damage because it's not, as every system, it's not actually allowing people to be in their humanity and wholeness. It doesn't really establish a context for what healing would even look like. It still keeps us piecemeal, keeps us separate, it keeps us, everything's interior. You're working on yourself. But what if self is entangled? What if self is actually a myriad of things? You know, it's part raven and part riverbank and part community and part ancestor. If I'm only working here, I'm missing this vast scope. There was a saying in the alchemy, alchemist tradition from Michael Sendivogius, who said, the greater part of the soul lies outside the body. So to experience soul, you feel it in the overlap, like right now between us, Mm -hmm. even though we're on these devices, there's an overlap, there's a meeting place. That's where soul is happening. It's in the between places, rather than kind of in the old, you know, Christian idea that it's all interior. It still privatizes us. You know, it still isolates us. And I want to extend that out. That's why I love the imagery of soul. It's communal, convivial. Yeah. I'm curious how your soul has transformed given the work that you do in the world. Like what have you noticed by your own soul in response to working with souls in the way you do? That's a very curious question. What have I noticed about my own soul? Well, I think it, it's it's my wife. My wife might not like something. It's been my primary relationship. I for probably for the first 
I don't know, 30, 40 years, I was in a very disparaging relationship with myself. A lot of self-hatred, a lot of shame. Every day was a battle. And I think coming into an intimacy with soul has been kind of what has redeemed me. And it has shown me a very different way of seeing myself in the invitation to befriend myself. And in that process also, as I was just saying a moment ago, to feel my entanglement with the wider world. Shame isolates us, really imprisons us in a cell of self-judgment and uh, contempt and scrutiny. You're always watching everything you do to make sure you don't mess up. So this really generated the field of compassion and, and a much more permeable membrane around my identity to feel actually I'm actually quite immense, as are you, as are mm-hmm. all of us, right? You know? We're not individual cells bumping off of the other individual cells, but we're this beautifully participatory, you know, pond surface where we're all engaged with each other. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but... You are. I like the question. Jung said, at some point in our life, we go from kind of a self-led life to a soul-led life. There's this pivot at some point or another, usually midlife. So I feel like right now I am really in service to soul. I don't feel like I'm necessarily leading a life as much as I'm following where soul is leading me. And I don't always like where it leads me. The demands of soul are quite large, you know, particularly in, I'm a very strong introvert. I love being alone in my solitude, but I'm out there talking to thousands of people. You know, what the hell are you? <laughs> What's up with this game? You know, but, you know, I also at the same time feel like so amazingly grateful for the chance to bring medicine into the world. That's a, a true honor to have a chance to, to deliver the gifts we came here to give away. Most of us are never asked that question. We're taught a career, but not a calling. What did your soul bring with you? We didn't come here as an empty slate, you know, as they used to say. Tabla rasa. We came here, so I think it was Wordworth said, trailing clouds of glory. We came here with these bundles to give away. In Maladoma's village, when a woman is pregnant, the shamans would come and put her into a trance state so they could talk to the soul that's coming in. And they would ask, what are you bringing for us? What gifts are you bringing? And then their name would be a reflection of that medicine. That is so gorgeous. So every time your name is mentioned, you're reminded you are a gift and that you're needed and necessary. So many of us feel extraneous, like we don't have a purpose, that we don't matter. We're just a cog in the machine. And that leads to a great feeling of emptiness that's at the heart of a lot of our grief. It's like speaking of of grief, I've been asking everyone this question about, you know, what meaning are you making of this moment? Like in our culture, in our world, with everything you named at the beginning that is going on, how do you understand this moment or relate to it? Because the just disruption that is happening, the trauma that's happening, the resilience that's, you know, emerging How do you make meaning of this? Or how are you? One of my primary metaphoric systems is alchemy. I love that system. It's so based in the ways of nature. And alchemy talked about these different seasonalities, like the negredo, the blackening, the albedo, the whitening, the rubedo, the reddening. There's another term for yellowing. but And these are all seasonalities in our lives. But I think also in cultural lives. And right now we're in a, what I call, we're entering the long dark. We're entering the negredo stage. And it's a fierce stage. 
when it's happening to us psychologically, you know, personally, or whether mm-hmm. it's happening in our culture, it is a time of stripping. It's a time of, in nature, it would be a time of decay and dying. Things have to end. Nature's not always putting out flowers or putting out fruit. There's times of decay. There's times of composting. There's times of death. And I think we're in that stage right now. And it's a very frightening stage because we don't, there's no guarantee of what's arising or if anything will arise. But we have to become participants in the decay. We have to participate in the dismantling of all these structures that have caused so much harm, so much suffering around the planet. So I have faith in that underlying movement of the Negredo. This is not a time of strength, of rising, of confidence. It's a time of shedding, of decay, of endings. And one response to endings is to try to reinforce the patterns more diligently. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of them try to clutch, hold on, and reinforce the old structures. It may prolong, but it's also going to make the fall more catastrophic. So the more of us that can understand that this is a necessary time, certain things can only happen in the dark. There's a poem by Rilke, Rainer Mary Rilke. Part of the lines are, and yet no matter how deeply I go down into myself, my God is dark and like a webbing made of a hundred roots that drink in silence. I mean, think of your heartbeat right now happening in utter darkness. We hope it never sees the light of day, right? Or our gestation in the womb of our mothers, utter darkness. Or those roots beneath the trees or beneath the plants, utter darkness. That's holy ground. I think that's also part of the work right now is to get out of these binary systems, good and bad, light and dark, right and wrong. They all polarize they all miss the complexity of the mystery so that they both possess beauty, sacredness, wisdom. So that's kind of what I'm seeing happening right now. Mm-hmm, the darkness. Yeah, I have two beehives. Sting is one beehive and infinity is the other. And the baby bees are born in the dark. And then they go out of the hive just to feel the sun and they want to familiarize themselves with the hive, the smell of it, the sound. And then they go back into the dark and they stay there for some of them forever and some until they can become foragers and go back out to gather resources and bring them back to the hive. And I've been thinking about them so much. I mean, I do every day. I go and meditate with them. But like, what does it mean to be born in the dark and get a little light and then to have to go back and like an infusion of light and then to have to go back into the dark to work, to support the hive? That's what they're doing. Everything is for the hive. And it just feels so relevant to what is happening right now. And yeah, so what, what you named about the darkness made me think about them again, the, really? the bees. Beautiful image. Yeah. Because we are in ascension culture, because our religious bias is towards ascension and light, our associations with darkness are typically negative. Hell, it's bad. So we resist it. We do not know how to collaborate with darkness. Both, you know, think of that racially, think of that collectively, think of that in any terms you want. Our associations with darkness have led us into a polarized binary system, and we miss the holiness that dwells in the darkness. And that's another reason why I attract soul so much. Soul is at home. In the dark. If you read the myths and the fairy tales, underground, it's in the caves, it's in the lower, it's in the, you know, low places. It's not on the mountaintop. Well, I'm not saying it's not on the mountaintops, but that's not typically where you find soul. 
Soul is in the descent. It's in the dropping. It's in the depths. We talk about it as depth work, right? That's where you find soul, in the depths. I'm curious to know, just based on everything you've shared, like how do you, and I read this in The Wild Edge of Sorrow, you described your work with grief or having an apprenticeship with grief. And I, I'm just like thinking about how you respond to despair, given what you understand about the soul in darkness and how you maybe work with your own grief or because it has to be there given what you're doing in the world too, like given that we're humans, but also you're intentionally working with souls, which I think grief, it's connected to our human experience and our souls. And how are you working with your own grief in response to what you feel, how you feel in this moment and the meaning you described, the dark? What do you do to respond to your grief? How do you hold it? How do you work with it? It's a lot of questions. But a really, really essential one right now, particularly with COVID and our isolation and our being able to gather. Well, the other thing I'll tell you in a quick story, but the, a few weeks ago, I was heading to bed full of despair. I was just kind of in that place of hopelessness, like, we're going to go through this again. This is, you know, the potential is there that we're going to, you know, elect this guy again. <laughs> and I was really heartsick. But I turned towards my bookshelves and I pulled off a collection of essays by uh, Linda Hogan. Do you know Linda Hogan? Priscilla mm-hmm. Elder, and wonderful poet and a brilliant writer. And I opened up the book to a chapter called All My Relations. And I read it, and I realized how much my despair had kind of collapsed me into my own privatized world and how cut off I was from all my relations. And that when we're cut off, we feel powerless. We feel impotent. And we lack then the resilience and the resource to respond to what is going on. So I kind of began to send out my tendrils again to the moon and to the stars and to the trees around my home, the dug fir and the redwoods and the madrone and the oak and the bay and to the sorrel and to the you know squirrels and began to feel my, my larger body again. I think it's only in that larger body that we can face what's going on right now. I have this wonderful honor to work at the Cancer Help Program, Commonweal in Bolinas, California. Twice a year, I get to sit with, we have to cancel them this year, but eight people from around the country, around the world, come for these retreats. And they've done almost 220 of these retreats over the last 30-some years. But on one of the retreats, I remember a young woman, early 30s, just gotten married with all the dreams of marriage and potential children and all that. And then she was diagnosed with a very serious cancer, very life-threatening cancer. And then my individual session with her, she said, I'm just, I'm just terrified. I'm just so full of grief and fear and panic and terror. And I asked her, can you recall a moment in your life when you felt the connection to something we might call sacred? And she thought, she said, yeah, I, I, I can. I remember sitting in a sweat lodge one time. It was one of those lodges with an opening at the top. And through that opening, I could see the stars. She said, in that moment, I felt this profound connection to the ancestor. And I said, okay, now, is that self that you were in that moment bigger than the terror? She said, absolutely. I said, that's how big you have to be right now, all of what's happening to you. It's fine because we in our positivity, you know, our, our very positive, happy culture, it's fine to get your arms around hope and, you know, positive thinking and love, but it's harder to get our arms around despair, hopelessness, fear panic, dread, despair, you know, death. 
He said, but that's how big you have to be right now. That's the bigness that all of us are being asked to, to achieve is we cannot get through this, you know, shrunken. We have to get through this through immensity. We have to become big enough. And the only way to become big enough is to feel into the tendrils of all of our relationships, all of our kinship that weaves across everything. In that embrace, I'm immense. doesn't mean it's not difficult. It certainly is incredibly weighty right now, the layers and layers and layers of grief we're feeling. But that's the only way I know I can stay in touch with it. The alchemists would say, you must keep the material warm, otherwise it will harden and congeal. So we have to keep the grief warm. One of the primary causes of death in this culture, right? Congestive heart failure, right? Mm -hmm. What's congesting our hearts? It's not just, you know, cigarette smoke or fatty foods. It is our hearts are congested as they have congealed. The grief has hardened and congealed. So one of our deep core practices is to keep turning toward the grief and offering it our affection, offering it our interest, our curiosity, our effort, our love and keep it warm. It can keep moving. Grief is never meant to solidify. And as far as I know, human species, as far as we've been here for at least 300,000 years as homo sapiens, grief has always been communal, and it's always been moved out of the body. The Dagra people of West Africa and many other cultures say that grief is a toxin. It is not meant to be stored in the body. And now, thank goodness, science can actually prove this, that when we cry grief tears, they're literally carrying toxins out of the body. Those are the only tears that do that. Tears of joy and, you know, tears of onions. And they don't do that. That's just sailing. But grief tears are literally cleansing us. They're literally taking toxins out of the body. So what our ancestors knew, what indigenous people know around the world is absolutely verifiable. You know, we have to keep it moving. But to keep it moving, we have to keep it warm. Stay engaged with it. Grief works us. We're also asked to work grief. You know, it's a reciprocal relationship. We are changed by grief's arrival, you know, reshaped by its load. But we're also, in turn, asked to work it. It's not a passive state. It's not just an endurance state. It is an active, creative, imaginative, engaged state. That's what we have to do when grief arrives. Why do you feel like people are so afraid of it then? Like, I agree, I completely agree with you, and I have some thoughts about my question, but there's such a fear in my experience, such a fear of being with it. And culturally, we have three days to grieve and we go back to work or what, you know, there's systems in place that don't allow people to grieve and we're separated. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about why are people so afraid of keeping the grief warm, of turning towards the grief, of being with it, of working it? Yeah, another, another core question. The primary thing I think is that we've been taught to, that we have to engage it privately. And if what I just said a moment ago is true, that we've always done it communally, now it's become a private thing. We go to a private practice, you know, to talk to someone about it. You know, I'm grateful that they come, but at the same time, that's symptomatic. You know, we, when we do grief rituals, when we could do grief rituals, we had people coming from Australia, from England, from Canada. We had people coming from all across the country, which is wonderful that they came, but it's also symptomatic of the core grief of amnesia. We have forgotten the rituals that kept us human. We've abandoned them so that most of our practices around grief lack the potency to keep it warm. They lack the containment field strong enough to pour the, the raw energy of grief into it. So when we cry, we actually apologize at funerals. Right. Didn't mean to lose control. There's something about this control thing 
You know, it is so dominating how to be in control. And that is not what we need when we're in grief. We need to lose control. We need to fall on the ground. But we can't fall on the ground if we don't feel containment. I often say there's two things required to let go of grief. One is containment, one is release. Well, if you're given both assignments, guess which one wins out? You become a permanent containment field. So if you've noticed, probably people you sat with, and certainly myself and people I've sat with, we're kind of recycling grief stories constantly, Mm -hmm. but not setting them down. We're chewing the same bones. In fact, I think many of the bones we're chewing are ancestral bones. They're the grief of generations upon generations upon generations. I would say at least the last, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 years, we've begun the slow migration away from communal mindedness towards individualism as a primary mode of identity. And that movement has led to a tremendous sense of isolation, emptiness, dislocation, and the kind of the um, idolatry of privatization, whether it's privatizing water or, you know, people colonizing our own emotions. That's really a symptom of of an empty psychology and empty spirituality. What you named about containment and release made me think about a moment. It was the moment George Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin. And I had been out to dinner and I came home and I I like read the news on Facebook or something and I fell to the floor like, and was in pieces, like witnessing myself and falling apart. And it, it changed that moment of acknowledging that. And then I had to do some deep healing work around that and still in, it just changed the whole trajectory of my life. <laughs> it like changed. I made different choices. It just, I think it, it was a sort of gateway to being with grief because the grief felt deeply ancestral. It felt like I was just wailing for my ancestors. It didn't, I was like, this is not just mine. This is so much bigger. And so it made me think about that release. And I mean, in that moment, it felt scary and I felt alone and it was just going to happen. Like the ancestors were like, this is just happening now. Like you are just going to crack open. And I'm appreciative of that medicine in that moment. Yeah. And my ancestors, for sure, even though it was so painful. And you've mentioned ancestors, and I've been moving through a meditation where I connect with my ancestors and and ask how they moved through times like this, right? And what medicine they want me to bring forth and healing. And I'm curious to know some about your practices with ancestors and if your ancestors are speaking to you about this moment or your work in general, because you've been doing this work for a long time, what messages are you receiving? Well, complicated. <laughs> I know. I tend to ask questions that are... There's almost two ways I would respond to that. One of them would be, what is my soul lineage? That lineage is very different than my blood lineage. My blood lineage, going back through, primarily through Germany and some Irish in there, but what I get from that lineage is all about disruption, about the abandonment of culture and the suppression of culture. I've often thought about all of the issues that we're facing right now, as we've talked about from racism to climate to economics to culture to gender. To, I often wonder what's at the heart of all these sorrows? These are almost like these are the symptoms of a primary loss. So I've always I've wondered about that, and I think about it in terms of this question about white European ancestry and the dismissal and the loss of localized culture that was embedded to place, to myth, to ritual, to food, to landscape, 
to language and to have that basically erased and replaced with this idolatry of individualism. And that's what came across the ocean, individualism. Now, individualism by itself is, you know, maybe, I don't know if it's good or bad, but what it creates is an empty self because you've just lost that whole context for your sense of identity. You've lost traditions, you've lost community, you've lost clan affiliation out of initiatory promptings. You've lost cosmos, living world, and you're reduced to the singularity of me. That's empty. And out of that emptiness, I may have read, I talk about primary and secondary satisfactions. Primary satisfactions are all those things of ritual life and singing together, eating food together, dreaming together, and waking up and meeting each other in the morning and going and gathering firewood and dancing at night around the fire and telling the stories. And that was the rich soul context for my being. And when that all gets ripped away, what I'm left with is secondary satisfactions, power, privilege, rain, wealth, material goods, actions. But none of these ever satisfy the soul. Why do we have so many people who are wealthy always wanting more? Why do we have a culture in the United States of America that always wants more? Why are we the highest consuming culture on the planet? We make up 5% of the population and we consume almost 30% of the goods. Why is that? What is this avarice? What is this emptiness? What is this hunger? I mean, I was at a workshop on race relations. So, God, I don't know how many years ago it was. We were going around the circle and I happened to be the last person in the circle to share. And I said, well, one of the things I'm really looking at is this question about emptiness. And this black man jumped, literally jumped out of his chair, pointed at me and said, that's it. Until your people deal with that emptiness, you're going to continue to kill us and steal us every day, you know? Yeah. And it just hit me. Like My spiritual responsibility is to look at this question of emptiness. And so my ancestors, that's what we're wrestling with is what did we lose? And then how do we export that loss around the globe? We come into Africa, we come into South America, Native Americans here. Every place we've gone, we've we've destabilized their cosmologies, lost ours, and replaced it with economics and individualism and privatization. All of the things that are symptomatic of our suffering is what we've exported. And now everyone's trying to imitate us. Even in Maladona's village, I remember watching the young men wearing watches that didn't work, you know, wearing the Nikes, you know, trying to emulate the colonizer, you know, fortunately, there was also some resistance in the village to doing that. And they're still trying to maintain some semblance of their original identity. And again, I don't know if I've answered your question, but this is a core thing that I'm trying to listen to in terms of my own ancestry and then listening and, and being supported by that soul lineage in doing that. Because I think it takes a lot of courage to face emptiness. It's an abyss. That's a hard cliff to look over. And everyone wants to avoid it. That's why we spend most of our time online shopping and you know, seeing what we can grab and what we can do. Supremacy is and, and empire are the two most egregious forms of trying to cope with emptiness, trying to put yourself above some other human being or put yourself above nature, for God's sake, as if we could, you know? But that's what emptiness does to you. It makes you desperate to fill the hole. And it mm-hmm. never, ever, ever, ever works. It's mm-hmm. just a deeper hunger. In Buddhism, they call it the hungry ghost, right? You never satisfy the hungry ghost because it's not souls asking for. Souls asking for this, you know, to have these conversations of meaning, you know, to see each other almost make me cry, just to be present with what matters. 
when we gather together in ritual space, we're not wondering what's on TV tonight. We're not wondering if I can buy a new car. We are ritually, we are, we are soul satisfied in those spaces. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. We're not yearning for something better or more. Progress is another one of those frictions that comes with emptiness. Always someplace better to get to. And that's a pernicious one in psychotherapy. I want to progress, right? I have to always be making progress. What's the obsession with that? Well, we have to keep getting better. But soul doesn't work that way. Soul regresses as much as it progresses. It stands still. It drops down. It meanders and wanders like a stream. It's not linear. It's not one directional. I've never met anybody heal that way who helped who healed in that, in that kind of linear fiction. Even the idea of keeping progress notes. It's obscene. Uh-huh. It really is. Anyway. Hmm. Good question to ask. I love everything you said and what you acknowledged around emptiness and what that person in the training said to you, right? Like, I completely agree. That's it. And I mean, being in a Black body, it's really, and knowing I'm bigger than my body, but it's really challenging to to continue to experience the emptiness that white body folks have, right? Because they're working it out on us. And okay. it's it's just like, I can see what's happening. Can you please do your work around, you know? Can you work with your soul? Can you acknowledge the emptiness and the suffering, the pain, and how you're replicating that? And so I just am glad you spoke to all, you know, on so many different levels, the ancestral and the soul, and why we're where we are right now. It really is our work as white people to look at the vacuousness of what we've been given and to begin to redream and reimagine what living culture actually looks like. Mm-hmm. What are the stories we need to be hearing and telling? What are the rituals? That, I mean, one of my deepest commitments is not to use other rituals from other cultures because the, the rituals have to arise. I believe Earth is a dreaming creature. Mm-hmm. You too, right? And rituals are dreamt up out of the ground. So I can't do a ritual from Africa or, you know, I, I just can't. But I have been given, we have been given beautiful rituals. I remember working with Maladona, some, one, of our, one of our programs we did together, I, I shared a reclaiming ritual that came to us, came to me in a process I went through. And he looked at me and says, you know, that's the first indigenous ritual I've seen on this continent. But you wouldn't find this in my village. I says, yeah, I know. This is not what your people are suffering from. They haven't forgotten. You know, reclaiming means you've forgotten something. So we've had, we have a lot of reclaiming to do to begin to shore up the resource against so And again, not looking for some place to steal and to kill and to colonize, but to feel our own wealth, our own richness, so we can meet you and your richness in that place together. Celebrate that place together. Diversity is beautiful. You don't want to go through a monocultural forest. Right. That's boring. You want the diversity. You want the rich climax culture to take shape and and all of its beauty. Yes, that is what we want to have happen. I want that to happen. I know we're in the dark and I'm I'm holding on to that, that we can aspire to what you just named and that we are. I mean, I kind of think we're in the dark and people are trying to figure out how to move through the dark, right? Well, if you think about, you know, traditional cultures, frequently it was in the dark season of the year where these rituals occurred and where the stories were told you know it was not in the brightly lit times it was in the dark times that these things came out i think we're radically posed for transformation right now if you look at myths again 
in the myths, they would say, that you, you've entered the time of the wasteland when the land is dying. Is that happening? Damn right. They would say, that we're living in a time when the king has become corrupt. Well, don't need to say any more about that. We're living in a time when the ways of justice have been lost, and the ways of peace have been lost. That's what the myths tell us. Those are the conditions for soul to transmute. That's what the myths tell us. So I have to put my faith in the wisdom tales of ancestors from all around the world, that when those conditions occur, that's when radical change can happen. That's my deep prayer, is that we use this time in the dark to listen, not to try to propose things, to applicate new solutions, but to get still, to slow down, to become quiet, to become receptive to the dreaming of the earth, and find our way through, hopefully, to someplace that's fertile and greening again, and remembers what it looks like to be a, a human being in a human community in living relationship to a living world. Yeah, I've been saying this like mantra, I believe in us. I've been saying it over and over, like, I believe in us, I really do. And it may not mean that I survive this, and I believe in us. Like, I believe in humanity and nature. And I mean it when I say it, and I'm also just aware, well, you're not just talking about you, like you believe in our collective power, right? And connection. And I've just been saying it almost every day to people and to myself. And it feels authentic and real. It's not like I'm telling myself that to feel hopeful. It's like, I actually do believe in us to create, we can create something different. Yeah, I think so. I think we're wired for it. I mean, when we've done rituals and many times there are people who have never done this before but they just feel because of the grief they're carrying, whatever, they feel called to come and they go into these deep ritual processes and they come out of it, you know? They say, you know, I've never done anything like this before, but it felt strangely familiar. Now, what is that? You know, we're wired for this. This is our deep time ancestry. We were all ritual creatures. We were Mm -hmm. all someplace. We were all rooted to place, you know, in that sacred ground. Jung called it the unforgotten wisdom, the core of the psyche. Mm-hmm. I like that phrase. It's unforgotten. Mm-hmm. It's still there. It's gone either dormant or we've just kind of put too much concrete over the top of it. But like you know, we see on the streets, those dandelions still push through, and yes, you know, lichen still breaks down stone. And so, at the core of the psyche is still this memory, this ancient memory of what it looked like, what it felt like to be encircled again, be in gatherings where we address the inevitable challenges and joys of being in this body temporarily. Yeah. A short ride has to yield something that feels like I was here. I think I have one final question for you. And you just mentioned joy and what's bringing you joy right now? Like what we've talked about a lot of the dark and grief. How are you finding joy or remembering it? However you relate to the question. Uh, there is definitely joy in times with my grandchildren. Just to see that we just call that faith in us. Children just possess it. They're just exuberantly, dynamically expressing their vitality. And I can go over there quite wearily and exhausted and depressed or whatever. But after a few minutes of playing with them, my laughter returns, my delight returns, faith returns. But beyond that, I think the thing is, is um, not beyond that, in addition to that. I was coming home from a, a men's retreat once some years ago and my friend Richard turned to me and said, Francis, are you happy? And I thought about it for a moment. He says, well, I have moments of being happy. He said, I think I've given up trying to be happy because every time I wasn't going at something, because again, we're a happy culture. 
to what I want is to be alive. So I have times of being sad. I have times of being outraged. Times of being lonely. But all of them have vitality in them. What I want to be is a good host to what has arrived. I don't want to go after some experience, you know, because it's preferred. Because then I make an orphan of my grief or my sadness or my loneliness or whatever. What I want most is to be alive for this moment. And that includes welcoming everything that arises, every part of it, every part of that experience, including the grief and the joy, however it shows its face. So that in the end, as the Zosa people in South Africa say, when, when death finds you, make sure it finds you alive. I want to be found alive when I leave. Like William Blake on his deathbed, last thing he did was draw a picture of his wife. Mm. And then entered that mystery. That's a good way to die. Fully alive. Not backing our way into the grave, but saying, yeah, yeah I was here. I was here. And I showed up. And I brought everything, and I spent it all. I'm leaving my pockets are empty. Hallelujah. Thank you for all of the medicine and for who you are and the gifts you bring um, forth and the gift you are. And for taking time, I know you're really busy. And so thank you for taking time to, you know, have this deeper than a conversation connection with me in this way. And yeah, I just, I'm so appreciative that we got to spend this time together in this way. And I could keep talking, right? Like, I feel like that. Oh, warmed up here, but I know. Thank you too. And your, your graciousness and your beautiful questions that elicits what you, know, you call forth medicine. That's part of your medicine, I think. And I've listened to some of your conversations and you do help elicit and draw out the gifts that people carry. So that's a gift all by itself. Deep bow of gratitude to you, Michelle, and blessings of all that you're doing, all the gifts you're bringing. Thank you. I hope your home is safe. I hope fire does not take over, even if we understand destruction as part of I hope you are safe and well, and that you take care of yourself and I'll see you on the path. We're just waiting through this together. So we'll be singing together very soon i'm sure i know yeah well thank you all right okay you too take care bye for now bye i hope you enjoyed the episode thank you so much for taking the time to listen you can support finding refuge by rating it on itunes and by sharing it with friends and beloveds You can support my work, the work of skill in action, creating justice in the world by becoming a patron on Patreon. Visit my page there. It is skill in action. I hope you take care of yourself and that we take care of one another. Be well, friends.